Okay, first question. The famous Lacoste crocodile symbol was the first designer logo ever created in 1933. Um, hmm. I would say no, faux, no. I mean, that's a good piece of information, but I would say no. Why do you say no? I wonder, because I wonder if like Chanel had the double C's before then. Hmm. Subscribe to the Fashion League podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever platform you enjoy listening to podcasts. Stop what you're doing and go subscribe. On this episode of the Fashion League podcast, we have the inimitable Mr. Mickey Boardman. Mickey Boardman is the editorial director of Paper Magazine, where he started as an intern and has been with the publication for nearly 28 years. We bonded over our hoarder-like habits of collecting magazines, and since he was recognized as the most invited person in New York by Fashion Week Daily or the Daily Front Row website, I asked him for his insights on how designers could reimagine what they do with fashion shows, given the recent press around rewiring Fashion Week calendars to coincide with buying seasons. And speaking of Fashion Week, resort shows and spring 2021 presentations are underway. Gucci live-streamed 12 hours of their campaign shoot in place of a fashion show and released 133 images of their resort collection. Is it resort or spring? Damn it. Gucci's creative director, Alessandro Michele, stated that in this moment of change, fashion is finding a new way to come together. And he posed the question, why do we work in fashion? Cosmo announced that their new paid website membership includes exclusive bonus stories and a members-only newsletter in your inbox on the regular. Cosmo says that you can read four articles a month or for a mere fraction of your chicken nugget budget, aka $2 a month, you can get unlimited access to all the cosmopolitan.com content your eyes can handle. I don't eat chicken nuggets. Hi, Mickey. Hello. It's so great to have you on the podcast today. What are you up to on this lovely Saturday? Well, I baked some cookies sort of earlier today. I sort of, you know, I never cooked until quarantine. So I've been cooking a little bit. I still haven't really baked, but I buy this kind of pre-made cookie dough and I, you know, make some cookies like as a treat. So I did that. And then I just watched, I've been watching some old movies the past few days. So I watched an old movie and then now I'm just relaxing. Oh, what movie? Yesterday I watched A Letter to Three Wives, Mm -hmm. which was an amazing sort of melodrama from I think 1948 or 49. And then this morning and afternoon, I watched Stagecoach, which was a Western from 1939, which was really great, directed by John Ford. Awesome. So let's start. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Well, I was born in Chicago. And then when I was like three or four, we moved to the suburbs of Chicago. So I grew up in a place called Hanover Park, Illinois. Um, You know, there was very sort of strip mall, kind of like McDonald's and and whatnot, Mm -hmm. you know, very above ground swimming pool. And then when I graduated from high school, I went to Purdue University, which is in West Lafayette, Indiana. 
And when that happened, my parents moved to Florida, to the first to Daytona Beach, Florida for about 25 years. And then about five years ago, they moved to Tampa, Florida, where my brother also lives. He had gone to law school there and stayed. So, you know, when I visit my family, I it's in Tampa, Florida. But um, I would consider the Chicago area my home, and I still visit there regularly. And yes, and then when I did my junior year of college, I lived in Madrid, Spain as an exchange student, the Universidad Complutense, it was called, which mm-hmm. was like a humongous university in Madrid. And I, after I graduated from Purdue, I actually went back to Madrid for a year to teach English and then spent the summer in Germany. I kind of loved to kind of just move around in international spots because mm-hmm. um, I'd never even really traveled until I moved to Madrid. I'd never been outside the country. I'd never had even a passport And then, yeah, when I was in Madrid the second time, I decided I wanted to come to New York to study fashion design at Parsons. So I started over it a bit and did like three and a half years of BFA, but I failed a class my senior year, so didn't ever finish, but was an intern in paper at the same time. So when I failed a class that same week, paper asked me if I could sort of answer the phones because the person who ran the office and was the photo editor and in charge of the internship program, who sort of who did a million things had quit. So they kind of wanted me to fill in until they figured out what to do. And that was 28 years ago or 27 years ago. So what led you to decide that you wanted to be a fashion designer? Well, it's funny looking back, you know, it seemed logical at the time because I sort of always, not to be a gay stereotype, but I always loved clothes and I always really loved magazines, you know, and you know, where I come from in Hanover Park, Illinois, at the time, nobody I knew was in, no one's parents really worked in anything too creative. I mean, my dad was a pharmacist, People, everybody's parents kind of worked in offices. A lot of the moms were kind of stay-at-home moms or maybe like it was an Avon lady or something. So nobody, I, you know, it never really struck me that you could work at a magazine, you know, and I, but I always loved to buy magazines. I remember buying Vogue when I was 10 years old at the supermarket, which was kind of a weird thing to do with the, you know, for a t- 10-year-old boy in Illinois in, 19, in the mid-70s. But um, yeah, so I just, and it never really struck me that, wow, I could go work at a magazine. And then But, you know, and throughout my life, the whole time I really loved magazines, you know, I really learned Spanish by reading Hola magazine. I mean, I went to school as well, but that's kind of how I learned sort of everyday kind of speaking. And sort of while I was in Europe the second time, you know, I I really, when I went to college, didn't know what I wanted to do. So at first I was a psychology major. And then when I decided to go to Spain, I became a Spanish major because I had taken Spanish from seventh grade and had sort of tested out of a like a couple years of it and gotten credits for it. So it just seemed logical. That's why I actually graduated a semester early because I had so many credits and going to Spain, everything counted towards my major. And yeah, so I really just, when I going away to Spain, it was the first time I was kind of around gay people or artsy people. You know, I really had always been around. I just sort of, I'd never taken an art class or anything like that. So I kind of never really had indulged in that kind of creative side And I just really liked it. And I liked going to stores and I liked looking at, you know, fashion magazines and making collages on my wall. And so it just seemed like, wow, that must be fashion design must be great. And it was a fun experience, I have to say, going to Parsons, although obviously I failed a class so I never and never finished. So it wasn't I wouldn't wouldn't call it exactly a triumph from my perspective. And, you know, I was the type of student who now I think it would be different. But at the time, I was way too freaky for them. Like they were not like I was very editorial. 
it was not really even about the clothes. It was kind of about telling a fun story. And that was not what they were into at the time. And, you know, like I would do, I remember I did this collection called the Jackie Ho collection, Uh which is probably politically incorrect, which is a Jacqueline Onassis hip hop collection Mm. inspired by that band Crisscross, you know, them, how they wore like their little jeans backwards. And so it was just sort of a very... it was very funny stuff that wasn't even really necessarily meant to be serious. Or I did like the Supremes go to Shanghai, which was all like black models and blonde wigs kind of wearing sort of Chinatown dresses, which I mean, it's all sounds like horrible cultural appropriation at this time. But at the time, it kind of was fun. But again, you know, once in a while, a teacher would kind of appreciate me. But basically, at the time, Parsons was all about training you to be Michael Kors assistant. And like to them, Michael Kors was as wild as you should be. It's sort of the opposite of what London art schools are. And also I've been like, I've been a critic and a guest speaker at Art Institute of Chicago's fashion school since. And they love, it's run by Nick Cave, the artist who's amazing. And they can't, you can't be freaky enough for them. God help like the kid who like wants to do a, a little A-line skirt and Peter Pan collar blouse because they don't, they only want you to be freaky, freaky, comme de garçon there. But anyway, the good news was, you know, it helped me explore a side I'd never explored. I mean, like I said, I'd literally never taken a drawing class. I'd never done anything of that, that kind. And at the time I was an intern at paper because when I was in, living in Madrid the second time, I made friends with a woman, Alex Kuczynski who um, was spending some time in Madrid. And her best friend from college was the managing editor of Paper, Wendy Gabriel. And the minute I moved to New York, I remember discovering Paper, and it was my favorite magazine. I would read each issue from cover to cover and then go to the newsstand demanding to know when the next issue was coming out. And so when I met Wendy, the managing editor, I just said, wow, you're so lucky. Paper is such an amazing magazine. And she said, "Well, well, you know, we have internships. Why don't you come be an intern if you'd like? And um, we had to do an internship really for Parsons. So I I did. And, you know, again, I'm so dumb, or I was so dumb and green. It never occurred to me, like, wow, you could be an intern at any place you wanted to be, really, that would have you. So and that's when, you know, I was having the experience that Parsons was not really where I was meant to be at the time. And I, I learned pretty quickly, even though I was on some level having a good time exploring my creative side, you know, I learned that I'm not meant to be a designer. I love fashion and I can pick things out. I'm more of an editor than I am a designer. I hate, I'm not good at sewing. At Parsons, we had to like make a tailored jacket by hand and that was sort of torture for me. So at the same time, while that was happening, I would go to Parsons and they loved me or not to Parsons, to paper. And they loved me. They loved my crazy outfits. They loved my enthusiasm. And you know, when you're at a place and you get positive reinforcement, it really sort of makes you want to work harder and makes you feel and feel appreciated and happy. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had those two extremes going on at one time. So, you know, at a certain point, I wanted to quit Parsons because it was not a fun experience on many levels. My mother just said, you know, you've come this far, you might as well finish. It's and, And I realize now that all school in a way and all work is really about personal growth and development. You know, so you learn more really in a way from the bad experiences or from the failures, if you will, Because for a long time, I felt like I was a failure at Parsons because I never finished. But actually, you know, if I hadn't failed out of Parsons, I wouldn't have been able to take the full-time job at paper when they offered it because I still officially had some school left. If I So I wouldn't have been able to take that job. So really, in a way, failing out of Parsons was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, it's all kind of just how you look at the situation. So um, so I'm still, I'm very glad I went. I have a great relationship with Parsons now. I've spoken at graduation. I've helped them choose designer of the year. Sometimes I've, you know, spoken and been a critic at classes. 
So I kind of just fell into it at, at paper and I was just happy to be at a place that was happy to have me and that created a product that I thought was really amazing. You know, I, as I said, I was paper's biggest fan. And that's something that's in a way has always been unique about paper, I think, since it's the only real job I've had, is that it's really made up of people who are kind of super fans. If we're having, when we do a Lady Gaga cover story, we have the person who writes about it is, yes, a good writer, but also is like a, a Lady Gaga super fan or a stan, as the kids say today. You know, so we approach it from that perspective, as opposed to some magazines that maybe will have someone who has a master's from Columbia School of Journalism but is not like a crazy music fan would, would speak to Lady Gaga. Anyway, so I was just so happy to be there and loved paper. And Wendy, the managing editor, once asked me to do an interview like with someone to do with Vanessa Paradis, who was later Johnny Depp's wife and who was the mother of Lily Rose Depp. And she was a French pop star at the time who I was obsessed with. And when they asked me, I said, you know, because that would happen every now and again, they'd have somebody who they'd want to do a story on and they would need to find a writer for it. And, you know, I said, gosh, I love I'm obsessed with Vanessa, but I'm not a writer. I don't think I can do that, even though I actually had always been a good writer in school and I loved writing. And that was one place that I felt like I could really express myself, you know, in my personality. And Kim, the co-founder of Paper, had always said, if you can talk, you can write. So but still, they tried to talk me into doing it, but I, I refused. And that is, I do regret that actually looking back. But then about a month later, they needed someone to interview the actor Rupert Everett, who had written a novel called Hello, Darling, Are You Working? And I also was very obsessed with Rupert. So I was a perfect person to interview him as well. And, you know, but again, I kept fighting it. And it's so funny to look back on like, here's this wonderful opportunity to do something I was thrilled to do. But I sort of was arguing, trying to talk them out of giving me the opportunity. And Wendy finally said, bless her. You know, she said, listen, just pretend you've already done the interview and write the introductory paragraph. And we'll look at it together. And I promise you, if it's terrible, I will not make you do the interview. But I know it's not going to be terrible because you're a very good storyteller. So so just do that for me, and then we'll go from there. So I did it. And, you know, the one paragraph was kind of all about me, nothing really hardly about Rupert. But <laughs> Wendy said she thought it was really fun and funny and wanted me to do it. So I skipped a half a day of school at Parsons and met Rupert on the roof of the Peninsula Hotel. And he was wearing a swimsuit and a mesh tank top. And he maybe even took the tank top off at some point. But I mean, just, it was very gay and very fun. And, you know, I wrote up, I bought a little tape recorder on my way there, like at Best Buy or Nobody Beats the Wiz or some electronics place, recorded it and wrote the story. And it was like 300 words and I got paid $35 or something, I think. And it was so fun. And so, you know, I was thinking like, here I am at school where they're not really happy to see me. I'm not really happy to be there. It's not, it's, it's a very stressful, unhappy situation. You know, I have that, or here I can hang out with Rupert Everett in swimwear talking about jock straps and get $35. It's like, it was a dream, you know? So that's when I sort of first had the thought that like, maybe this is what I should be doing. You know, if I had known when I was young, like that, if I had even thought of the idea of being a writer or working at a magazine, I, I probably would have ended up being a soap opera writer because I'm a really big soap opera addict. But again, watching them as a kid, it never occurred to me like, wow, you could grow up and write soap operas. <laughs> what were some of your favorite soap operas? Well, you know, I've watched every soap opera at one point or another. When I was, I'm always attracted strangely to the bottom of the of the ratings pile for some reason, you know, like the ones that are clinging on to life. <laughs> Passions was my favorite in high school. I loved Passions. I watched it right up until the end. 
you know, I was a little, my mother, when I was a baby, watched The Doctors and Days of Our Lives. So I kind of, Days of Our Lives is the one that I've had the longest relationship with and I watch currently. And it's the only one that has new episodes on right now during the pandemic because they film so far in advance. So they actually have new episodes going up till I think September or November or something. But then at a certain point, like in the 80s, I loved All My Children in General Hospital. At other points, I loved Another World. I loved Passions. I had a long phase of of As the World Turns and Guiding Light. I loved Search for Tomorrow. I lo- you know, I've, I've, I've watched lots and lots and lots. And I, now I watch, there's only four left and I watch all four. I watch Days of Our Lives. I'm loving General Hospital these days. Um, and Days of Our Lives, of course. And Young and the Restless and Bold and the Beautiful, I also watch, although they're just having reruns on right So you went from being an intern to being the editorial director at Paper Magazine. And you've been there for 28 years. I started as an intern in 92. And I, you know, I started answering the phones January 2nd of uh, 1993. So yeah, so that was basically, that was uh, 27 years ago, almost 28 years ago for the, for that. And again, you know, it's the thing is for me, I've, there are two kinds of people. I have friends who like, like to start things or love to do, like they love to change apartments every year. Or they love to change jobs all the time. Or they're always kind of looking for the next step. I've been in the same apartment for 26 years, the same job for 28 years. I kind of like, you know, I like variety within that, but I kind of like to find the place that I feel happy and am appreciated and stay, you know, and I think once you have that, once you experience that, like a place that you really feel happy and accepted, it's kind of hard to go someplace else. How do you create variety in a place you've been for 20 odd years? Well, the thing about like a magazine is, you know, and especially in like a website and, you know, we have an agency, we have all different things going on. There are a million projects happening at once. Mm-hmm. And if you find it's something that's boring, the, the longest it's going to last for like a month, maybe. Or, you know, if it's like a big giant kind of project, like negotiating a cover or something, maybe it'll last longer. But all the, at the same time, there are lots of other things going on. We're working on a shoot that's going to be next week. You're writing a story that's due like in two days. You know, so even though it really is content creation, so it's always in a way the same, it's always different because it's involving different subjects different creatives, different, you know, different goals and things like also we do paid content for brands, which is fun and interesting. We do our own things just because we love them editorially. We do events, we've been doing virtual events. So it's, it's, you know, each day is very different. So I like that. At the same time, so many of the people I work with have been there for so long, no one as long as me, but so many people used to be interns who now are like vice presidents of different departments or who run projects or who have gone from being students starting off to being very powerful, very interesting, very creative people to collaborate with. So I think that also fosters a certain kind of atmosphere. So a little birdie told me that you, like many in the fashion industry, are a little bit of a magazine collector or magazine hoarder, as I call myself. I, I, I agree with you and um, I support you because I am very borderline hoarder. I mean, watching the show Hoarders or you know, Hoarding, Buried Alive, any of those shows, I totally, totally understand where they're coming from. Although I do like to think that your stuff and my stuff is a little bit of a higher quality than some of the literal garbage that people do hoard who are who are officially hoarders. But, you know, and the problem is I do also pendulum swing every now and again. Like I'll literally, I, I, I'm a hoarder of not just magazines. I have, I love royal history. So I have hundreds and hundreds of royalty books. I collect royalty busts. I collect, you know, art. I collect clothes. I collect you know, just all kinds of crazy shit. 
So the house is just like overflowing. Like every flat surface is merchandised with stuff. Every cabinet is filled with different stuff. So um, I do then have to sometimes do purges. But um, so I, I and I found a balance where I do have a house full of magazines, but like I don't save every copy of every magazine I subscribe to like I used to. So I brought it up to ask you, do you have like a favorite issue of a particular magazine that you own? Of paper or of a different magazine? Any magazine. What's your favorite issue? You know, I hate to say this. Well, no, I'll say there are multiple, a few, but I sort of am embarrassed, not embarrassed, but I'm torn about even saying them. There was an issue of British Vogue that I remember buying called the gold issue. I think it was called the cover was gold with Kate Moss on it. And I think the whole thing was shot by Mario Testino. And I hesitate to say that because he's, you know, been me too and his, is responsible for some horrible behavior. You know, the honest answer to the question is this issue because he did a shoot. I love like, like I remember he shot Lady Amanda Harlick's daughter, Tallulah Ormsby Gore, who was maybe like 12 at the time, which is also, you really shouldn't shoot 12 year olds, although I loved it. And it was all these kinds of like cool, fun, interesting kids, you know, kids of famous people or just fun models or just cool kids. That one I loved. And Vanity Fair also, which I've been a big fan of through the years, did a royalty issue with Prince William on the cover that also probably was shot by Mario Testino. But they shot like lots of royals from around the world. And that for me was like a real bonanza extravaganza. And the funny thing is like the magazines that I subscribe to, I don't really subscribe to any fashion magazines at this point. I subscribe to The Economist, which I don't save because it's not really like that kind of thing. I subscribe to Soap Opera Digest, which I I saved an issue from like the last month because it's the first time I, I've ever written a letter to the editor and it was published. So I was so thrilled. It's like my most exciting byline ever, I think. What did you ask? What was the letter? Well, it was just they have, you know, it's soap operas are dying. They started including like canceled soap operas in the big features. Like if they did a thing for Mother's Day, And it was like fabulous soap opera mothers. And they did mothers from like another world and guiding light or, you know, when they do the greatest soap romances of all time, they'll also do some like canceled soap. So I just wrote saying how I was thrilled and appreciated that they did that. So I saved, saved the issue with that letter. Um, I also subscribed to like some Royal history, things like this thing called royalty digest. I I subscribed to Polish Vogue, but I think it just expired. So I might need to renew, even though I don't speak Polish, but I am Polish. So I like to support. And then I subscribed to this French royalty magazine called Point de Vue, which is a weekly, which is very like, um, it's really for old ladies, but it's, it's about all the sort of royal families of the world. And I've taken French throughout the years and I, my speaking is not so great, but I could really totally translate an article for you about like the Countess of Paris's new grandchild or something. You know what I mean? You know, no headlines and, and various things like that. So, but yeah, there are a few others. Like I love System Magazine. I have a bunch of those I've saved. I have, I'm looking over at piles of magazines. I have a whole section that's really paper. Tatler, it could be fun. So I have some old Tatlers that have like fun aristocratic girls on the cover. Yeah, I have the copy of Louis Magazine that Rihanna's on the cover. How about you? Which magazines do you save? So I'm a Beyonce stan. So I have all the Beyonce covers. I have the Elle cover where she's wearing the first Ivy Park drop. I have the CR Fashion Book cover that was creative directed by Ricardo Tichy. She's wearing all Givenchy. I have all the magazines that I interned. Which intern? Which magazines did you intern at? So my first internship was at Redbook. I have a couple of those. And then I have a few L issues from when I was an intern. I also have a couple from Vanity Fair from when I was an assistant. And I have a couple from Brides Magazine when I was an assistant there. And I have a bunch from Oprah Magazine where I was an assistant editor. So yeah, just collecting magazines from everywhere I've worked. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I brought all those magazines from Delaware. So I went to graduate school in Delaware and I brought all those magazines to my new apartment in New York. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> in love I, with them. I remember <laughs> when I was in Madrid the second time and I was moving to Germany for the summer, like I overslept and was going to miss the plane. And I had all these Ola magazines or like Spanish Vogue's from the time, like this was in 1988 or something. And I couldn't fit them all in to my backpack and suitcases. So I kind of like, it was like a Sophie's Choice moment where I was like, fuck, I, you know, yeah, I had to make the quick decisions of what could go in, what had to like be left behind. And sort of as I've gone on through the, through the years, I've um, shed more and more and more that of course you, one day you like wish you could have them all. But yeah, like I was saying, I sometimes being a hoarder, sometimes you have to do these purges and it's, I, I've learned that it's easier to kind of do it calmly, not when it's a crisis moment. So like to kind of get rid of things that you don't really, really, really need. And if you love it, love it, love it, you should absolutely keep it always. But um, just because otherwise then I feel like I hit the wall when it's suddenly like there's no room for anything else. And then you end up getting rid of things that maybe you would have liked to have keep kept. So I wanted to get your insight on Fashion Week. There was a recent article talking about shifting the existing Fashion Week calendars and combining the gendered shows to non-gendered showing. And what do you think, or how can designers reimagine what they do with Fashion Week? Well, I will say I am a fashion person. I love fashion, even though in many ways fashion is very backwards and kind of horrible in many ways. I have to, I have to say that. And it's like a fat person too. It's like, you know, it's, in many ways, fashion is always telling you you're not skinny enough, you're not rich enough, you're not, you don't have the right thing. I'm the opposite of that. I think, so I love style. I love, there are people who have great style who don't have money or who just have creativity and who love putting on what they put on. And so that to me is what's exciting about fashion. And the thing that's amazing and interesting about the time we're in now is even before the pandemic, a lot of brands have realized, you know, in fashion, we do what we do because that's what we've always done. Not because it's what's good for anybody, not because it's what's good for the brands or the customers or the stores or, or anything. So I think it's great that people are saying, look, it's crazy for us to do so many collections, so many presentations. I mean, back in the day when I started, you know, there were two fashion weeks a year in New York and New York was at the end, not the beginning of the cycle. You know, it would be New York was after Paris instead of before Milan or before London. You know, that was it. And, you know, there was no internet. So photographers would shoot the clothes and nobody really saw them until months later, really. Or, you know, if New York Magazine or like paper would do a couple issues a year that showed fashion collections, you know, but you would, it it would be weeks and weeks since the time they were shown before anybody really saw them. And then, you know, they would mostly would be seen in magazines when they were in stores. So it was, everything has gotten kind of backwards from there. You know what I mean? Now the, you know, everybody can watch the live stream. So a kid in the Philippines or a kid in the middle of Russia or Australia or anywhere can watch the Balenciaga show at the same time as, you know, the 300 editors, in Paris are seeing it. In fact, the ones on the live stream probably see a better view of it because they it's filmed for people to see to see the clothes well. You know, because of that, that sort of has thrown a big wrench in covering fashion because it's at a certain point, if you don't write something about the show that day or put up a photo, or if you don't have the first photo online from that show, you're late already. You know, and there's always somebody on Instagram, Instagram living it or posting a bad blurry photo or... <laughs> 
posting something on Twitter. So that kind of just starts this whole crazy hamster wheel situation. You know, also the way fashion weeks are too, is there are things all the way across town. People are scrambling and stuck in traffic. It's stressful. It's a nightmare. It's things are late. Things are, you know, it's, it's really hard. And, you know, there's nothing like being at a beautiful, amazing fashion show. It really transports you. And it's, you know, it's the music, it's the set, it's the, you know, it's so much more than just the clothes themselves that can really create magic. But in a certain level, I think we are seeing from not having fashion weeks now, having digital fashion weeks, that we can live without them. I mean, it's less exciting on a certain level, but you know, it's less, it's not, we can live without them. And it's a lot cheaper not to do a fashion show than it is to do a fashion show, I think. And there are brands that have done things that have been to me so much better than a fashion show, believe it or not. Even though I listen, I love to go to Paris. I love to sit in the front row of a fashion show. I love the Mark <laughs> Jacobs show. I love that all. But like when I think about like Rodarte, for example, they a couple of years ago did, they kind of just sort of released a lookbook that they shot on all their friends who of course are all Super talented, gorgeous, interesting, talented people like Kirsten Dunst. And I think it was shot by um, the fabulous Autumn DeWilde, who just did that new Jane Austen movie. Emma, who's worked with Rodarte for years. And they just posted them on Instagram like throughout a day. And that was, to me, a better use of their time and creativity than a crazy show that, you know, costs so much money and is so, so frantic and people are running and scrambling to get there and stuff. Their shows are always incredible, but I felt like that was a better use of their time and a more effective brand message. And Tom Ford one season did, he made a music video with Lady Gaga. And I can't even remember what the song was. It was some sort of like re, like some um, sort of soul train dance line situation kind of with fabulous models in, in the clothes. And that, the clothes looked better in that video than they do in the real live fashion show of Tom Ford. Just because it was a fun, super amazing, interesting thing that I that I remember more than I remember a lot of the live shows that I've seen from designers. I'm actually happy that things these things are being reevaluated, and I think it's great for it to be men and women together. I think it's great for it to be when is convenient for the designer. I think it's great that they step out off the hamster wheel and not have to create like eight crazy collections every year because that doesn't really give you time to be inspired and to do something that you think is great. It's just like, churn it out, churn it out, churn it out. So I think it'll be interesting to see like what happens. And, you know, also even as like an editor, I mean, I'm sure you see too, it's like, I was saying, it's like there were two fashion, you were dealing with fashion twice a year now, or before the pandemic, at least it's like, it's nonstop. There are appointments, there are new collections, there are capsule collections. It's like literally all year long, you're going to appointments or there are shows or there, you know, between the resort and the pre-fall and all this stuff. It's, it's literally become nonstop and it's just kind of too much, I think. And that cycle kind of coincided with editorial team size shrinkage. Totally. And, you know, I still don't understand, and this is, I have a certain kind of a brain. I still don't, I never could comprehend what pre-fall was versus resort versus cruise (laughs) versus, okay, I'm seeing it in August, but when's it going to be in the store? Like I had no idea. And even when like we were putting shoots together and the brands would say, okay, well, what collection do you want? I'd be like, just who, what have you got? I don't, you know, I don't, or what's going to be in the stores when, Um, the issue comes out and it was never going to be in the stores when the issue came out. You know what I mean? Like you're shooting so far in advance and things. Yeah. So I I think it's simplifying that all could be so much better for everybody. Even in the proposed rewired scheduling, there's still the confusing pre-fall and resort showings on top of autumn, winter, spring, summer deliveries. You know, but the thing that's an interesting opposite of what we all just said is I remember going to the Louis Vuitton 
Cruise collection, I believe, at um, JFK that was a couple of years ago that was like a big extravaganza at the former TWA terminal. Mm-hmm. And it was really fabulous. And it seems to me they kind of fallen onto this formula that's sort of also like the Dolce Gabbana formula. It's kind of this international cruise formula. Maybe Chanel pioneered it with all their arts and metiers collections or their cruise collections in that they invite, it's really for the customers, you know what I mean? And they like, so you at this Vuitton show, yes, of course you see the usual um, celebrities who are associated with the brand and the usual editors in New York and from around the world who were flown in. But you also saw kind of like a couple, like a hundred of their biggest customers from around the world who each buy like 10 outfits just to come, like they come to spend four days in New York and they get to go to a thing, a party at the store. They come to the show. They go to a dinner. Louis Vuitton has made a fortune just from those customers for the show. The same way with Dolce Gabbana, who I hate to promote because, you know, they're so problematic. And by problematic, I mean, you know, they're assholes in a way and say horrible, offensive things. But they're genius in that they fill their shows with the children of rich and famous people who then come to the show, buy 10 gowns, and, you know, they make, they sell the whole show out. So, you know, that, depending on the super, super, super rich, is seems like a business model that never fails because if you can catch those catch those customers, they're always rich, no matter what, if they're in, we're in the middle of an international monetary crisis or a pandemic or whatever. So, those brands, you know, while on the one hand, everyone seems to be slowing down and trying to take a breath and doing less, but doing better, like these other kinds of brands also at the same time wanted, I think, do more of that kind of stuff. So it'll be interesting to see. So are you ready to play faux or fashion? Yes. Although I'm not exactly <laughs> sure I understand what, what the, how we play, but I'm ready. So faux or fashion, essentially, I will give you three fashion stories. And if it's a true story, so it's basically true or false. You'll tell me if it's true, you'll say it's fashion, this is a real story, it happened, mm. or if it's a fake story, I made it up, didn't happen. Okay. Simple. Okay, first question. The famous Lacoste crocodile symbol was the first designer logo ever created in 1933. Um, hmm. I would say no, faux, no. I mean, that's a good piece of information, but I would say no. Why do you say no? I wonder, because I wonder if like Chanel had the double C's before then. Hmm. Well, according to GQ, this was the first designer logo. Okay, so, there you go. I, you know, it sounds like, it sounds believable. The tennis player, Rene Lacoste, he put that on one of the polo shirts that he was playing in with, I think that was 1927. And then he turned it into Lacoste, the fashion company. I love, well, there you go. If I wear a look, I'm wearing a Lacoste now, you would think I would know that. But now I know. <laughs> I mean, I th- that was <laughs> one of the reasons I picked it. <laughs> Okay, so second question. In 1926, the little black dress designed by Coco Chanel was compared to the Ford car at the time. So I will say, okay, is that the that's the whole thing? Okay, I'll say true. Or yeah. Not, all right. <laughs> In the October 1926 issue of Vogue magazine, they described the elegant garment as the Ford, referring to the insanely popular Model T at the time, and it was also similar in that. Henry Ford said the car was available in every color as long as it was black. <laughs> I love it. So you have one. You're one for... All right. Two. Okay. So this is the final question. Okay. All or nothing. So according to Royal Protocol, women must hold their handbags in their left hand. Is that faux or fashion? Wow. You know, I have no idea. I will say faux. What? This is true. So 
<laughs> so according to royal experts at the Beaumont Etiquette Institute, you'll always catch Meghan Markle or Kate Middleton holding their handbags in their left hand to ensure that their right hand is free to wave, shake hands, greet. That makes them. perfect sense. I love it. I love it. That is it. That you, you do well, you want? A rather poor job, I'm afraid. But <laughs> the questions were great. It was just my answers that were that were. No, wrong. you did great. Everyone's a winner for participating. <laughs> Which is what they like to tell people who've just lost, but thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Mickey, for being on the show. And that's it. Me. I hope you have a fabulous Saturday. I hope you do too. I'm going to go look through some of my old magazines too, since you've sparked that curiosity in me. Hey, what are you still doing here? Did you subscribe? Go subscribe. I'll wait.